A reading from the book of Hebrews, beginning in the eighth chapter. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room, there were a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this evening we're continuing in our series called The Beauty of Holiness as we're considering together what Scripture and the church have to teach us about worship. And last week we said that worship is our holistic response to the holiness and glory of God. And we said that God's holiness is his utter uniqueness. There is no one like God. And his glory is the manifestation of his holiness that reverberates throughout the entire universe and also manifests specially in the place where his people come and worship him in the tabernacle and in the temple, and now in the church. And then we left off in sort of an awkward place. I have to confess, it was difficult for me to leave us there. We're not going to get too much closer to a solution tonight, I'm sorry. Although, I snuck it in toward the end, you'll, you'll see. We're tracing this idea that true life is rooted in the life of God, and that to be a worshiper of Jesus is to be one who has been brought to life because you are in Christ. You enter in as a worshiper because of what Christ has done, and you're given life in that presence, in the divine life. And so, this is the problem. If life is found by being in the presence of God, but the presence of God is a consuming fire and no man may see God and live, then... We're stuck. It's going to be a few weeks before we get finally to the solution, but we are slowly making our way there. Tonight, we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about place. What does it mean to have a place of worship? Is such a thing even necessary? And and more importantly, what do our places of worship tell us about God and about ourselves and about our relationship to one another and to God. 
So with our scripture readings humming in the background, not only from tonight, but from last week as well, we're going to continue sketching our understanding of what worship is. And as we get started, I want to remind us of something that we say a lot around here. The point of being a Christian, the point of all of human life, the thing that God desires most for all human beings is that we would live a life hidden with Christ in him. This is the goal. This is what God is after in everything that he's doing. And it's essentially the thing that we are working to understand throughout this series on worship. And in order to understand it, we have to start to understand the meaning of the tabernacle. All of those weird rules and and precise movements and things that Scott read for us in our reading from Exodus, that's just a sliver of this enormous set of regulations about the tabernacle. And we have to work to understand the meaning of it. And in order to do that, I'm just going to list off all the rules. No, No, that wouldn't work. We're going to have to tell the story. We have to tell the story. Wendell Berry once wrote that there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Now, I don't think he's completely correct in the way that he means that statement. Or I was worried some, someone might walk out. That's like heresy to say Wendell Berry might not be 100% correct. But he's getting at a very deep truth about the world, and that is this. The scripture that we read last week from Genesis 1 told us that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And God looked upon all that he had created and saw that it was good. Indeed, it was very good. And then he rested. Job done. It's beautiful in every way. And in that origin story, we are told that God took the man that he had created in his own image, that he had breathed into his own breath of life, and he placed him in a garden and gave him charge over it to tend it. And it became obvious that the man needed a partner, someone to enter into this, what becomes obvious over time as theologians have looked back, this priestly gardening with him. And so God fashioned Eve also in the divine image. And we're told that God would come And walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day, and that the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, when the woman and her husband believed the lie of Satan and eat of the fruit of which they were commanded not to eat, everything becomes, as Wendell Berry says, desecrated. The entire fabric of the universe is thrown into disarray, Because those who were meant to be priests unto God have tried to assert themselves as God alone. The garden had been a place where humanity might commune with God unmediated, that is to say, naked. But once the man and woman try to assert themselves as gods rather than God's priests, they recognize their nakedness and are ashamed and afraid when he comes back into the garden to walk with them. This shame and fear, it's important to point out, is not something a nudist colony will solve. Okay? The nakedness was real, but it's also a metaphor for the empty-handedness of Adam and Eve in God's presence. The unmediated relationship between humanity and God. They were simply there existing in thanksgiving for the gift of life they had been given. The role they had been given in God's creation as his priests. And everything from this story has meaning, right? So God clothes them in skin to cover their shame and their fear, to to cover their nakedness, which means their nakedness, their empty-handedness before him is now no longer acceptable. 
They have lost an unmediated relationship with God in the wake of their rebellion. The implication is what? Blood is shed. You don't get skin without blood. Blood is shed to cover their empty-handedness. And when God removes them from the garden, which is to say he removes them from his temple, from the place where he dwelled with his people, what does he do? He places cherubim with flaming swords, barring them from re-entrance, barring them from access to the tree of life, essentially barring them from the place where his presence dwelt, his life-giving presence. They're cut off. And as you know from day 12 of January in your Bible reading plans before you've lost steam, in chapters 3, 4, 5, 6 of, of Genesis, humanity enters a tailspin, right? How are we going to return to God's presence, to the place of life? I mean, it is in the context of that exact question that Cain murders his brother Abel. They're both trying to figure out how do we get back to the presence of God? And as a scriptural witness slowly focuses in on the family of Abraham, we are met time and again with half-hearted, weak, sinful, rebellious people, people much like ourselves. And we are also met with a God who does not give up, but continues to move toward his runaway world with grace. And so when you fast forward to Moses, in the reading that we had this evening, we hear the Lord tell Moses to have the people make a sanctuary for him and what? gasp, stop breathing, feel your heart pounding. I will dwell among them. He's starting to undo the curse. And so he says, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Which reveals to us that the tabernacle is not just its own thing. It's a revelation of something else. It means something. Now we didn't have the space to include it in the readings this evening, but one of the first details that God gives Moses about this tabernacle is that there is to be an atonement cover, and we're going to get to that next week. But there's this atonement cover that goes over the Ark of the Covenant, and in very specific detail, God tells Moses there are to be cherubim fashioned and placed on the cover. So what is this? Those cherubim that barred the man and woman from re-entering the temple garden on their own are now seated on the atonement cover at the center of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a doorway back to the place of life. It is the doorway to the presence of the Lord God where the manifestation of his holiness, the cloud of his glory and his presence will descend. He will dwell among his people. This means life. Now I'm trying to walk a high wire here because on the one hand, If you walk away with anything, what we have to see is that the depth and richness of God's mercy, I mean, when you think of sin as the thing that if it could, it would kill God, that's what we have all signed our our palms to. we've, We've taken the knife, we split our blood, and we have signed on to if we could, we would kill God. That's what it means to be in sin, right? It's not a whoopsie daisy. The very fact that God would then reach out and covenant himself with his rebellious creation is overwhelmingly gracious. That he would provide a way back into communion with him is the gift of gifts. I mean, it's right there in the title. It's called the tent of meeting. You get to come back in. 
It's incredibly gracious. But on the other hand, what is the overwhelming sense you get from Exodus 40 as Scott was reading out all of those details? There's a curtain and a curtain and a shielding curtain setting up essentially three barriers, one around the tabernacle as a whole, the next around the holy place within the tabernacle, and the third within that around the holy of holies, which again in in Hebrew idiom, holy of holies is like saying holy place to the thousandth power. It's holiness times infinity. And then we're told that every item to be used in worship was consecrated. It was set apart and anointed with oil. And in Leviticus, we're told that it was anointed with blood as well. And the altar for the burnt offering was placed near the entrance to the tabernacle. And Aaron and his sons, we're told in Leviticus, were to take blood from the sacrifices and sprinkle it around the altar. Aaron, the high priest, was dressed in sacred garments, robes that had already been consecrated by anointing oil and blood. And as he and his sons were consecrated, they are anointed and set apart to serve God as priests. God's presence is back, but it's mediated. His presence is there, but it's not a place that you can quite get to. And there was a wash basin, and any time the priests were to enter in to serve God in the tabernacle, they would have to ritually wash themselves every single time. And even then, in that most holy place, only one person could enter only once a year and only with the blood of the sacrifice in his hands. Even at the end of our text, Moses, the man who we're told spoke with God face to face, is unable to enter into the tabernacle because of the cloud of God's glory precluded him. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So believe me when I say this goes against every fiber of my being to not just skip to the good news. I've been, I've been wrestling this out all morning as I've been writing. And there is good news. It's actually the best news. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about sacrifice and start to understand the depths of what Christ has done on our behalf. Before we can get there, we have to reckon with some things. Because I think, by and large, all of us in here have been raised in a church age that is solipsistic, meaning there's nothing outside of me. It's just me and my own experience. That's all that's real. And so the good news isn't the objective reality that I have been given access once again to the divine life in Christ. It's mostly just a way of internally dealing with my own sense of guilt. It's a psychology trick to make me feel better about myself. It's become therapy. Sins aren't sins, they're mistakes. They're boo-boos, they're whoopsie-daisies, right? And for too long now, much of the church, especially in the West, has been a bloodless, religionless Christianity and in turning away from the forms of worship that take seriously the holiness of God, we have essentially recast God in our own image. Now the Holy Trinity looks more like Oprah, Gale, and Dr. Phil. They give us gifts, they make us feel better about our mistakes, but there's nothing really required of us. which may seem nice at first, but it's actually a prison. I don't need to be made to feel better about my mistakes. I need absolution, which requires confession. 
But in this world, we remain firmly at the center, firmly on the throne of our own lives. Now, listen, we've done this before. Does God give good gifts? Say it. Yes, he does. Does the good news that the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world produce psychological benefits? At the very least, yes, it totally does. Does it do away with guilt? Yes, praise be to God. Should that make us feel better? Yeah, I mean, yeah, at the very least, it should make us feel way better. But this is about so much more than just that. This is about being brought into the presence of uncreated light, being brought into the Holy of Holies and not being consumed. That's more than just feeling better. The tabernacle, with all of its elaborate sacrifices and rituals, was the way back into fellowship with God, back into being made alive in the divine life. And whatever we may think of all of that bizarre, bloody ritual, and whatever has changed for us in Christ, and thank God there have been things that have changed for us in Christ, we must reckon with the fact that it is the same God who has worshipped for centuries in that fashion that now bids us to come and worship him. Same God. You don't get to have an Old Testament God and then a nice guy who shows up at the end. We say it in the creed every week. Jesus is true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. This worship that God has Moses set up is not just ancillary to who God is. It's revealing something. It's meaning something. And next week we're going to take a deeper look at the sacrificial system of the tabernacle. And then the following week, we'll see how Christ fulfills that. But despite me trying, I cannot leave you without good news. Because there is good news. You see, the tabernacle as the way back into God's presence was just a foreshadowing of what was to come. In St. John's Gospel, we're told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word actually means tabernacled among us. In our Gospel lesson this evening, Jesus refers to himself, his body, as the temple. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we now have confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies, unthinkable, because of the blood of Christ, and that we enter into it by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. Remember the curtain? Which is his body. In St. John the Divine's Apocalypse, in Revelation chapter 21, he's recording this magnificent vision of the new Jerusalem. And he tells us, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's pointing at this, that humanity, through our rebellion, has been barred from entering God's presence by the cherubim who stand with sword and fire. And for centuries, it was only through the sword and fire of sacrifice that God's people could be near his presence, literally with the blood of the sacrifice on their hands. And now, in Christ, as the temple, the tabernacle, the incarnated place of God's presence, unmediated. We have been given a way. We have been given the life. Christ himself is this way. Christ himself is this life. He himself is the dwelling place of God. 
He tabernacled among us. It's incredible. At the end of St. John's vision, the coronated Christ says to him, Look, I'm coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.